In a world where one woman locks herself inside a quiet studio and doesn't come out until the podcast is done, welcome to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed, a place you can get connected with Donna and her friends and listen in on some great conversation. And thankfully, unlike the intro you just heard, it's a drama-free zone. You're welcome. Now, as we listen to a bit of music from the amazing Mark Sparrow to lead us in, it's my pleasure to introduce the one, the only, Donna Reed. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mark. The guys behind the scenes of Spotlight Conversations, how are you today? Thanks for being a part of the podcast again this week. We talk to people in media. They have interesting stories. They work in radio, television. Maybe they write books. Find out more about what I do at SpotlightConversations.com. That's the website. And on Instagram and on Twitter at Donna Reed VO. This man coming in the studio has been a consultant. He's a radio guy. He's now an author. We had him on the show, yeah, I guess it was a year or so ago. And uh, we were talking about some other books that he's written. And he has this really interesting book with all kinds of backstories about radio. (laughs) So if you've worked with him, oh my God, maybe you're in the book. It's called True Radio Confessions, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Mr. Dwight Douglas. Hello. It's great to be with your podcast. How is retirement? First, can, tell me how that is, because it's, it's made this new career for you, a writer. Well, yeah, that's right. When you introduced me as a radio consultant, I'm a little bit like a radio consultant. That's like uh, decades ago. Way you know, back. Because, yeah, you know, I left radio consulting to go into real radio at Z93 in Atlanta. I did that mm-hmm. for three years just to see, boy, is, is this still fun? And uh, I always describe it as uh, the first year was fabulous, the second year was really challenging, and the third year was horrible because, you know, we were having ratings problems. So I left there and then went to New York to go into the software business and spent 16 years marketing software for RCS, the selector people. So, so I was in constant contact with radio people, and, but I really didn't do any consulting. I was really just in the software business. Now, for someone who's not in radio, RCS Selector, how would you explain that? Well, actually, one of the great things about this book is is that we took a, a, a timeline and of a, of a person, of a fictional character mm-hmm. from like 19, from the 1960s, him growing up all the way through the year sort of 2000. Oh, and um, Selector, one of the goals I've always been a big fan of Tom Clancy. I hate reading his novels because they're so long, but I like reading his <laughs> novels because uh, one of the things Clancy did was the detail. I remember uh, reading one of the early uh, books and he was talking about computerization and I happened to have a little bit of knowledge in that area. Mm-hmm. And um, he was spot on. Every little description that he did Every little detail was perfect. So when we sat down and tried to write the book, I said, okay, I want to make a book that's, yes, radio people will, will dig it because it, it's everybody's radio story, whether they play radio in their bedroom up to the college radio level and all the way into right. professionalism and, and suicide. Uh, radio, that was their radio timeline. But 
at the same time, the secondary market, so to speak, is the non-radio reader who wants to learn more about how this all happened and, and what's radio all about. So that's also in there. What do you think is the biggest misconception to people who are not in radio about radio? Okay. Getting back to Selector, Selector is a software program that programs the music mm. with a formula and algorithms. And one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about radio is that is that the DJs go in every day and just pick out whatever they want to play and play <laughs> it on the radio. The other misconception I point out in the book is when you call in and you get a request play like a couple of minutes after you call, uh-huh. that's probably just happened to have been already scheduled. Quirky. Yeah, isn't it amazing? What a quinky day. I know. So, yes, I have made the leap from radio guy to software guy to writer. And so when you approach writing, you know, this is my seventh book in seven years. And uh, I make the joke sometimes, you're writing the same book over and over again until you get it right. Yeah, I don't know. But, but for this book, I really, I waited for as long as possible before I wrote this book. Because A, I wanted to get some, let some time go past between the end of my radio career and now, because I wanted to be able to collect it all in my mind and say like, okay, how is this relevant? How can I make this relevant? That I'm excited about in the fact that I also, it dawned on me that a lot of people that are my age or older are leaving this planet in, in you know, every week. It's very sad. It and COVID worse, COVID made it worse. But I had to write this book now. I had to get it out while I still remember all these things. Uh, it was, do you think that's true of a generation that's in a certain age right now? They want to just get as much stuff done as they can. Important yes. right now. One of the funny things about this is that when I was researching, you know, I, I, I would call people and I'd say, hey, is it true that you played the same record over and over again in the studio and they called the police and the police came and <laughs> took you out of the studio and you got fired? And they're like, well, I, I, no comment, because I'm writing my own book. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the book from start to finish. It's a fictional character. I've seen a lot of wonderful um, comments about your book, Lee Abrams included, who you worked with at Burkhardt Abrams, talking about the story of radio. What's it about? I didn't want to write an autobiography. I didn't want to write a straight-up, history thing. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of books by my radio brothers and sisters that came off a little bit like disgruntled ex-employee back at yep. the boss of the company or the whatever. You're not doing um, that though. No, no. That's one of the things that I tripped upon is I've always loved the movie Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump to me was a great movie because Forrest was a fictional character that they created and they embellished, and you you so much associated and empathized with Tom Hanks' portrayal of Forrest that you you sort of bought into when he's playing for Alabama, and you see Bear Bryant, it's yeah, real. It's real. Or he's in the White House. It's real. So Forrest keeps bumping into real life situations, and that to me was very powerful and magnetic and 
it was great. So, so I, so once I figured out, okay, I'm going to create this character whose real name is Herbie Kluttenfelder from Dayton, Ohio. Love it. The worst possible radio name <laughs> and a name that I Googled and comes up that no one in the world has that name, which is great. How did so, you come up with that name, Dwight? I, I have to say, my editor asked me the same question. Kenny Lee Karpinski, Kenny Lee, as some people know him, but he edited. He's a radio guy who I uh-huh. went to college with, so there's a lot of parallels between Herbie, Herbie's life and Billy, who is the college buddy of, of Herbie. So there is some reality mixed into that. But the name was just something I will just type a name to get the fill in that blank. I mean, I didn't even think about it, right? And then I created an uh, identity for his mother and father and everything. And of course, he makes the joke about how that really wasn't a radio name. And so just like all of us, you go to the first station, they give you some stupid name, and he gets a, a, a dumb name in progressive radio in the beginning, oh, right, an right. astrological name, Gemini, and then that goes away when he gets to the big city, Cleveland, where they, where he wants to be Sonny, they, they said, they suggested something like Sonny Bob, and he says, no, Sonny Joe, and okay. then they settle on that, and they say, just, I, I want to be a DJ without a last name, and he goes home, and he gets a phone call from the program director, who says, oh, our GM doesn't like na- one name only DJ, so you're going to be called McPherson, that's his mother-in-law's name, oh that's his mother-in-law's maiden name, it's like, what? So he becomes Sonny Joe McPherson, and of course he holds that name all the way through the book. And the, and there's a there's a lot of people that pop up in the story who were given radio names by program directors or owners or whatever. That you know, I remember one time in radio where they wanted to call this disc jockey Leslie Lipschitz. The owner of the station happened to be Jewish, and he was like, "Well, is he Jewish?" That was the first thing. Is like use Lipschitz as a name unless he's Jewish. So the mullah is not Jewish. It's like, and they finally figured out that they were just doing a bit, right? And then uh, two days later, he became Captain America. So I mean, there is so there's that whole kind name. He goes out and he leaves college early and doesn't get a degree because he wants to jump right into radio. Okay. And I I caution people all the time. I say, hey, this was written in code. And I tell people, even before you buy the book, you know how Amazon gives you a little, Kindle gives you a little sample. Yeah, right. Read, read the forward, because the forward is what you see in a lot of Netflix shows. These are based on true stories, but some of the places, names, businesses, call letters, whatever, right. have been changed to protect the innocent. So when I say written in code, I mean that the people who know the stories, the people that were there, it will instantly pop into their brain. Oh, oh, I, I got this. Are they true stories? Yes, I would say 90% of all the stories are true. Uh, <laughs> and the only time I, like, for example, I have uh, Sonny Joe McPherson uh, gets a call from Bob Wilson of R&R, Radio and Records Magazine, newspaper, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. And he hires him to go to Washington to be the correspondent for R&R in Washington, D.C. Okay. So I write this whole chapter, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I need to get a hold of Bob Wilson to say, hey, I'm going to do this. You need to go along with me. If anybody asks, you say, no, that's not a real person. He didn't work for me or whatever. <laughs> and he read the text, and he says, okay, that's cool. You could, yeah, the way you've depicted this is fine. Because I said really nice things. 
about him. So, so when I didn't say nice things about people, I would sometimes change the name, or or somebody would be a snot and not give me the, the lowdown on what really happened at the story. I'd say, okay, I'd either change it to a different station, or I would change embellish. That, no, I would change that jock's name to a really <laughs> embarrassing, stupid name. <laughs> uh, there is, oh my! I could just see. How long did it take you to write this? It's a year. It's a year. I tell people all the time, you want to write a book, it's a year. Don't think you're going to like knock it out like Ernest Hemingway in one night or something like that. It's it's a lot of work. All right. So the book's called True Radio Confessions, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. What was the best part of the book to write? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the best part of the book to write for me was the meeting between Sonny Joe and Lee Abrams. Ah. Now, to set the scene, Sonny Joe at this point is an R&R reporter trying to get the inside scoop on what's going to happen at DC 101 in Washington before mm-hmm. they went on the air. So he's interviewing Lee in the hotel room. And I've had a couple of people who have read the book who came back and said, oh, my God, you got you got Lee perfect. It's per- it's a perfect description of the way- his mannerisms, his his rap and everything else like that. And I said, well, after spending more than 25 years with that guy. Of course. If I couldn't write him, I should just hang <laughs> it up. Okay, that's what I'm saying. What was the part that was the toughest to write? I think the toughest to write was trying to make sure the timeline was true. As true as possible. Because um, you, like any story, you start out with a lot of detail and backstory, and you build it toward a, a, a big fat middle, which is what I have now myself. But anyway, you get to that point where you realize, I mean, I woke up one day and I'm thinking, oh my, oh, wait, John London wasn't shot until the next year. So ah, now I have to right. redo the whole timeline. It's like you, you're constantly checking to make sure that. So I would say that was the most difficult uh, point other than just editing, which is just a crazy sport. You know, you want to read the same book over and over 55 times or whatever and find all the typos and all the things. And you'll never find them all because typos are ghosts. Uh, They are ghosts. Are you a tough editor on yourself before it goes to the editor? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, This time I used a method, uh, which Mm. is I really recommend for any writer. And that is I I write in, in we use a OneDrive. So we're, we're constantly collaborating. We're constantly going back and forth. I mean, we can be in the script at the same time and edit stuff and do certain things. Okay. We, also, we also found all the Microsoft bugs in Word <laughs> through this process. But anyway, the point is, is that you write it, it, it. It's I was writing a chapter a day, throwing it over the fence. He lives in Arizona, Kenny. So he would then, it would be ready for me early in the morning to see what changes he made. Then I would write the next chapter. So we're constantly going back one, up one, back one, one. Now, when we get, when I get everything done, uh, the first thing I do is I print it out and I actually edit in a printed form. And that is helpful, but better than a computer screen, you'll find errors. Then I take the file and I make it into a Kindle file and I send it to my Kindle and I read it on my Kindle. Okay. Then I made a flat PDF file and sent it to Roxy, my girlfriend's, her iPad. And so I read it in an iPad. 
Then I bring it back and I make it into a PDF. And PDF now has a, a concept called read aloud. Mm -hmm. And you could pick different voices. I, I found a Canadian female voice. I mean, you know, ignore the oats and the boats. But the point is, is that <laughs> I would sit there and I would do my little watercolor painting while listening to the script. And the great thing about it is when you because of your because I'm a radio guy, uh -huh. I'm hearing all the mistakes and I would quickly click, click the mouse, and write it down. I want to tell you, that is absolutely a great way. And now with all this audible uh, books on tape and all those other uh, services, it's important that it sounds good as it read. Although these are mechanical computer voices, you know, they, nah. they, they mess up. Yeah. Uh, every time she would say 13Q, the name of the radio station, she would say 13Qis. It's like one thing. No. What is that? So, what Roxy think living with you this past year? You're writing this book. It's a creative process. Um, did she give you space, or tell me? Okay, <laughs> we've been the, this June 29th. Big announcement here for your for your listeners. We've been together 20 years. Awesome. I mean, I was only married for 14 years and produced four kids and five grandkids. But our 20 years together it's have, all good. have been very productive. She has her butterfly. She raises monarch butterflies. Oh, and yeah. Spends, spends hours raising them and releasing them and converting them to Judaism. But no, I'm kidding. Uh, the point is, is that the point is, is that, yes, she gives me space. I uh, once she retired from her business, I commandeered her office here in the house, which I'm sitting in right now. And she now calls it my office, your office. So you so, just, yeah, she gives me a lot of space. I, she's reading the book now, and she's a very critical reader, and mm -hmm. she will get through certain passages and be like, hey, is this right? Is that right? And Or it'll be like, hey, Buzzy Bennett, I, I, call, I talked to him on the phone one day. <laughs> oh, no. so, and then I started a True Radio Confessions Facebook group, yeah. a couple hundred people. So we came up with this. I don't know. I don't know where this started, but I think one of the one of the listeners, or what do we call them? followers? Followers, know, listeners, friends. friends. The followers came up with the thing saying, "Oh, who's going to play Sonny Joe McPherson for the movie?" And then I thought, "Oh, this is great." So every day, so who I've been I've what? been taking different characters. I mean, I don't know what Sonny Joe looks like, so I have to. Oh, you must have do. an idea. He comes from somebody you've known or worked with, or well, I think he's the he's the seventies uh, rock PD. The yeah, sort of the yeah. hair to the shoulders, but not that further. Yeah. Cut beard, well trimmed beard, and glasses or no glasses, I don't know. But I hate to say this, but I'm kind of locked in the picture of the PD in the movie FM. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like that. And by the way, if you think back to all the PDs you had and the PDs <laughs> I worked with over the years, they all sort of had that, that same look, you know, so. So I think we're on target there. But anyway, the the, the True Radio Confessions Facebook group uh, is get, it's a lot of people are coming to it now. And this game we're playing now is where I take and take a picture of somebody in the book, like Charlie Miner, mm -hmm. the VP of promotion at AM, who's in the book all the way through. And I really thank his family for helping me uh, with the text and making sure that I didn't step on anybody's toes or, or said something stupid. But anyway, uh, 
I just posted a picture of Charlie Miner today to say who should play him. And Robert W. Walker, one of the great jocks. Yes, back, uh, in Miami. I used to listen to him. Yes, he's in Miami. And then he he came back with Matthew McConaughey. Mm. He's the perfect person. I can to, see that. Charlie Miner. I mean, Matthew is right now. It would be perfect with that thing. So, uh, And then Alan Shaw, I talked to him the other day, who ran ABC FM for years. I mean, here's another thing about radio people. Here's the point I make in the book. And I make it like so many times people were going to think it's redundant. But I say, radio is a small, incestuous business. It's, it's, you know, everybody has radio in their button there, and we're all connected. And it doesn't take long. If you sit down with a radio people, radio person, no matter who you are, within, I would say within five minutes, you'll be like, oh, you work there? Blah, 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 blah. Here's the huh? case point. I had a call with uh, Alan Shaw the other day, and Roxy was like, Alan Shaw, I, I listened to him when I was a teenager. I'm like, no, no, you didn't listen to him. He's... He's from Louisiana. He's not. He worked uh-huh. in Chicago. He said, "Well, when I got out of college, I got a seven the midnight job at uh, WPTR in Albany, and uh, I was like, oh. so you were on the jury.' He said, yeah, the PD made me use my real name, Alan B. Shaw Jr. <laughs> of course, that's who she listened to when she was a little kid, oh, was a God. teenager. No, I just say we're all connected. You just mentioned PTR. I was like, oh, boom, boom, Brannigan, and all of those. Oh." Listen to it. That's where I grew up. Listen to it all the time. And speaking of radio, I mean, you've worked with a lot of personalities. Is there a certain personality that works in radio? Well, I've worked with some really crazy people. <laughs> I mean, I worked with Tom and Bob, Bob and Tom in Indianapolis. I worked with the guys in Houston, uh, the great uh, Mark and Brian in L.A. I worked with Howard Stern. I worked with Grease Man. I mean, I've worked with also top 40, big top 40 people as well. But I would have to say, no, there's not, there's no magic pill. There's no ingredient that says this person's going to work here or this person uh, will work everywhere. And I make that point in the, in the book where people in radio, remember, would go from one station to another in the same market. And finally, they would leave. And I asked, why would you leave that market? And the person says, I ran out of stations to work at. Now, the greatest fear they have and the risk is that they're hot stuff in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. But when they go to Terre <laughs> Haute, uh, nobody gives a hoat. They don't like them at all. And so, so the point is, it's not always transplantable. I know the guy I listened to on KDKA in the morning, who was just an amazingly creative person, went to L.A. and... Uh, Total, total failure. He ended oh. up not. So, so it wasn't that that Reach Cordic wasn't talented, but Reach Cordic had a, surrounded himself with people who wrote for him That's and so did true. voices who were so tuned into Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh sense of humor. And mm-hmm. so, when you get to L.A., you don't have those guys, and you don't have you don't have a wherewithal. You might figure it out after five or six years, but you know. Radio is a horrible mistress. Radio, throw you right out the door it's, it's within crazy. a year. I guess I'm saying you're in a little booth all day, mornings, afternoons, middays, late night. And there's nobody in there with you. Wondering, you've worked with a lot of radio people over the years. Isn't there a certain kind of personality that does that type of work? Okay. In the book, I outline the three kinds of people that Sonny Joe thinks are in radio from the okay. beginning. The one kind is the person who says, I got into radio to pick up chicks. Okay. Yeah, that's 
the TV personality that you're talking about. It's important for them to perform. It's important for them to have mm -hmm. a visual representation of the audience or they need as much adulation as possible. Then the, then the second kind of radio person is the person who is so into music and really gets off on playing, turning people onto music. And that's such a cool thing. That's such a really neat it radio is. thing. Mm -hmm. And obviously that doesn't apply to talk radio, mm -hmm. but maybe the equivalent is the person who is so into telling people the secret or whatever's gonna happen next. And then there's the third category, which uh, we point out in the book, which is the engineering person who, now we call them tech heads, IT guys. And, and these guys got into radio, were never that good, really. They were okay. But... They kept you on the air. They, they were always going for the innovation. They figured out a way to EQ the mic. Or... What are most people? A combination of all three? Morning guys are usually in the first group. Yes, that's true. Morning... And by the way, you want someone to be outgoing and have a need for that response mm. for the morning show because they're basically they have a different a different game to play their game to play is to entertain and to and to poke fun at things or bring things to light or they they have a special role and then there's other people that that uh the music freaks i think it's great and you know this because you worked in the business when a DJ can add something to the music that makes it better, that just clicks something in your mind or whatever. Makes it intimate. Right, whether it's discography or whatever. At the same time, you don't want to have somebody on there that's saying things like, well, when I met uh, Bob Seger back <laughs> in the... It's like I always dealt with Bob Seger's story. This is a true story. I was a houseman in a hotel in Pittsburgh when I was in college, which is a houseman is the person who does... All the jobs a, a union maid doesn't want to do. Uh -huh. And some of those are really bad. But anyway, so I get a phone call from the front desk. They say, you need to take an ironing board and an iron up to this room, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I get up there and knock on the door. The door opens. It's Bob Seger. And there's Bob Seger and two guys in the room. And they wanted to iron their shirts because they were opening for some major act across the street at the Civic Arena that night. It's like, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Aren't you? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Bye. <laughs> I also cleaned Richard Nixon's room, and Sergio Mendes in the Brazil '66 or whatever they were. Yeah, that's at. a separate podcast. But you go yeah, ahead. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, but the point is, is that to answer your question, I think there's a few people are are a mixture of all three, but most of mm. them land down on one of them. You know, pretty pretty firm. And you grew up in Pittsburgh. You were saying, who did you listen to? Who inspired you? Well, Pittsburgh is a very interesting city in the fact that, number one, it was where commercial radio started in 1920, mm -hmm. Dr. Frank Conrad in Wilkinsburg, a suburb of Pittsburgh. So there's that. So, yes, we all listen to KDKA and we remember all the all the uh, general service big AM station stuff. Uh, we had KQV there, which was a CHR top 40 station. And we also had Pittsburgh is in a unique geological position uh, where New York WABC would come in on the skip clear channel at night. We would get all uh, the Cleveland clear channels, WKBW out of Buffalo. We get WCFL out of Chicago. We get WLS. We would get a lot of stations. Whoa, whoa from Fort Wayne, Indiana. When I think about radio growing up, it wasn't long before I got to college. And then all of a sudden we were getting air checks in from 
all over the country that we could, Robert W. Morgan or whatever, that we could listen and some people would try to imitate a certain style or, or that type of thing. So, and then once I was in radio, then everything exploded because, you know, the, the simulcast rule went away. I mean, you had to separate your programming AM and FM. So you had 13Q come in to the market. And by the way, I think, again, this is personal because I wrote it, but I think some of the best part of this story is the whole 13Q story and the battle between 13Q and KQV. And the way I set this up is kind of unique, if I may say so myself. But the, but the key to this is that in this book, I pronounced that when 13Q went on the air, they simulcast AM and FM. Oh, yeah. And of course, it, they had this monster book and it didn't take long for the guys over at WWSW to say, hmm, we could do this on FM and get a bigger share than we're getting now with oldies or whatever they were playing. So the fact is, is that Bob Pittman came in with WPEZ on the air, and that really was probably a marker in the sand of UAM top 40 guys, get ready, the party's over because FM's going to come in. It's always changing. And they got a bigger signal, and it's in stereo. And yeah. and explain for um, people listening in that may not be familiar with radio terms what the book is. Radio oh, the radio book. Mm. Okay, right. In my book, Two Radio Confessions, we did spend a lot of time, almost too much time. And, and you asked before about what was hard to edit. That was really hard to edit okay. because I was like, two passages that I was like, sort of boxing with the editor on was the ratings stuff and the jingle stuff. You know, oh, there, are, really? there are people, yeah, there are people in the radio business, I mean, just between us girls, that, that think jingles yeah. are like the greatest thing in the world, that, like, you know, whatever. But the progressive rock people are like, jingles, why, why do you need jingles? Oh. Not for rock, well, though. Were there ever jingles I, in rock? No. No, but the point is, is that this book isn't just about rock. Mm, this okay. book is about all different formats. So, yeah. So, but the origin, the jingle origin story is in there. And I, I, it's great. Yes, I had to really compress that down. And the other thing about the ratings is we go from the beginning with Hooper and uh, Crosley and all these people that were that invented polling, not for radio, but for for uh, politicians, Politics, yeah. for elections. Mm -hmm. And then they said, well, we established a rating point. Let's do ratings for radio and then it, TV and then eventually. So we go from there all the way to the people meter in the, in the story. And it, it's, I think it's a very fair account of the skepticism we all have with ratings. But I also really make it very poignant that if the ratings don't go up, you go bye-bye in the car car. See ya. That's what happened. Yeah. Now, with all the radio stations you've consulted over the years, was there ever one station where you either walked in or you heard the station and you went, nope, nothing I can do here? That usually had to do with the ownership. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always believed, because my ego is so big, that I could somehow turn around a gray battleship in the middle of the uh, Baltic Sea. But there were times when... I signed a station and knew almost from the from the start that this is going to be so difficult. Just try your best. Yeah, here's an example. You get to a radio station. It's newly purchased. A guy comes in and says, 
here's what we're going to do. Ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -ba. And you're like, hey, yeah, great, 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 great. There's only two people that can't be fired, the program director and the sales manager. Excuse me? <laughs> well, because they're the former owner's kids. Yeah. That was part of the sale agreement that they would uh. have a job for 20 years. They're like in their 20s. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. We're going to have to work around these two uh, relatives. What about a station you heard or walked in to meet with them and you were like, oh, God, th this is great. We can fine tune it to make it even better. But the foundation was really, really good before you even got there. Right. Well, there are many of those stations. And I'm not going to turn to brag here. But a lot of the stations hired us so we wouldn't go across the street. So they were already <laughs> It's a two-folded the question. I kind of was hoping the, to say They that. were already the king of the hill here. We exactly. Were just going in. You know, one of the hardest stations to shape is a highly successful station. And mm -hmm. I remember consulting Mark and Brian at KLOS. I don't know if you remember this stunt. I announced that instead of them paying me, I would pay them to consult the station. Mm. And so we did a deal, it was a great publicity stunt, they ended up paying us. But anyway, the point is that when you get into to Mark and Brian and the radio station, it's already established, it's already doing well, it's the number one station. But to be able to sit down with Mark and Brian and say, they're like, hey, what do you think of the show? I said, well, the show is great, but you're not even tapping your market. And they're like, well, excuse me. I'm like, well, you're in LA, you're in Hollywood. Get a deal with a limo company and just invite famous people from their house, limo them in, give them a free breakfast and put them on the air. You could you could expand the the, the vista of your entertainment just by doing that. And they're like, oh my God, I never thought of that. That's a great idea. What a brain. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great idea. Now that you've retired, I know radio is still in your blood. You're writing books about the radio business. What's it like being retired and writing after those crazy rock and roll days okay well one thing about writing is I, my writing isn't just on books i have a political blog i write mm -hmm. um i'm constantly writing ideas and and things that i want to do stuff with or whatever i have a big uh one note uh folder which has hundreds of ideas for books or for whatever um so for me re being retired um, it took a little while to get into this concept that you don't have to set your alarm clock. Yeah. I mean. How long did that take? That's a trip. That took about a year, year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we were going between here in New York during the off season for a little while. And then we, she sold her other property and we, we just came here permanently. I would say for the last three years, I, I feel very comfortable in the idea of going to the grocery store, getting groceries, coming home, answering email, writing some stuff. Uh, I've always got something on the burner. There's always something going next. And plus, I also have this weird hobby that I've been doing for 40 or more years of doodling. And I got all the doodles together about a year and a half ago, and I made a site called thedreamwindow.com, thedreamwindow.com. And you can go there and see really bad doodles and cartoons and art. And I have to say, 60% of 
of the doodles were doodles that I did in meetings, boring meetings, where I was bored and I was doodling things. Did you save the paper napkins and the cocktail napkins? I mean... Yes. Yes. Some of them were on napkins. And then when I got here, one day there's a FedEx package at the front door. I was like, what is this? I open it up and there's another 150 doodles that they found at the office that they bundled up and sent to me. So I doodled so much in meetings that I was banned from doodling in meetings because the doodles were so much more impressive and interesting than the meeting and people would lose attention on the meeting. So, (laughs) and I understand I I was out of line, totally out of line, but, but that site to me is great because I don't think about what I'm going to draw. I just draw something and whether it's an abstract or it's a, a political cartoon or whatever, I just do that. But and by the way, I hate cartoons. You'll never see me reading the cartoons in the newspaper. <laughs> but I but I doodle. What you doodle? Doodle is a non-thinking event for me. It's great. Uh, yeah, your book is about life in radio, but how does that apply to deregulation? Okay, in the book, it's a little bit like. You know when you're watching a movie and you and you and you know there's a villain, but the villain is over here outside of the main story. Yeah. And in your mind in the movie you're thinking, Okay, when's that villain gonna come? That villain's there. We know the villain's there. When's it gonna come? When's it gonna come? That's you know, a little bit like that's a little bit like deregulation. Mm. Through the whole book, radio starts out as this free thing and whatever. But there were harsh uh realities. There, Realities, like for example, you could only own seven AM, seven FM, and seven TVs, and you could only own them in different markets. You couldn't own more than one AM or one FM or one TV, and so forth. And then they said, "Well, if you own a newspaper, you got to get rid of some of the radio stations." Right? That was one of the things. And then you could see the deregulation. The villain was slowly coming closer and closer. So we we outlined that whole deregulation thing, and show that first they said, "Well, let's." Let's ease into this with 12, 12, 12. Okay, mm. people forget about that. And they debated that and they said, well, and then a lot of people got into this LMA thing, local mm-hmm. marketing agreement, mm-hmm. where they could run a station without really owning it. And then you eventually get to Bill Clinton and David Geffen staying in the White House. And, and you definitely see after five years, the FCC comes out with deregulation. And what it did is it totally eliminated the one family or one owner radio station. And all of a sudden, people were buying up tons of radio stations in the same market and, mm-hmm. and that type of thing. So the my point at the end of the book, the character is lamenting this whole deregulation. And he's now gone through the whole concept of radio to then, you know, media. He's now made the jump to media. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not ruining the ending, but the, f- the point is, is that he's talking about how I asked the question, why is that important? Well, that's important because every radio station should have its own, uh, its own culture, its own format, its own music style, its own neighborhood, its own localization. That's everything. That was one of the reasons why we didn't just give 20 clear channel licenses for the whole country and not let local radio exist. They made local radio to be local, and it's no longer that. So here's the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Mm. We're not going to go backwards. 
things aren't going to change. Radio people are doing podcasts. Radio people are doing their own radio stations online. Some people are still working in radio and certain stations. But if we learn that radio became less valuable because of the lack of diversity and the lack of different kinds of ways of viewing things. So I apply it to social media. How could you possibly let, as a government, one person own one of the most powerful social media platforms? The viewpoint of millions of people around the world. And when I say own, decide who gets to go on and who doesn't. Now, some would say, well, they were already doing that with a public, a public company. But the fact is, is that we've already learned the lesson. So that is the lesson of deregulation. You think your book will have a sequel? Oh, oh no, please. <laughs> Someone's already suggested. Oh, I'm glad I'm not the true, only one. <laughs> true radio confessions, too. And, and by the way, they're sending me their stories. Yeah, and they are. And I told them, I said, you know, I have a, I have a website called DwightDouglas.com. Yes. Um, and that's where, you know, where I hawk my books and stuff like that. I said, look, if you have a story, go there. Don't just blast it on to the the Facebook page because people are sending stories and this this who should play who in the movie thing it it's actually becoming a little bit of a, a thing and I think probably if I can sort of get all that out of people between the the website and the and the Facebook group I'll be fine I'll be fine because I already have like I have two or three other books that are just sitting there saying wait 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 I've already started. Eight chapters of another I believe story. It. So, uh, and uh, that, sometimes I'll do that. I'll write and I'll put it in the refrigerator. And uh... <laughs> for sure. All right. So, a college kid comes to you and says, "I want to do radio." What would your advice be to them? Well, first of all, I think Abram said it best, and that is that anybody that's a communication major or a newbie kid trying to get into radio or whatever should read this book. Mm. Because and he's right. Because and I didn't think about that. I mean, he said that the realities I, of radio for the casual fan. And this is Lee Abrams, the consultant you worked with. Right. Right. So he 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 nailed it. Because I think it's a little bit like this is a this is a, an analogy, but I'm going to use it. So I had a person work for me who graduated from Fordham with a, a degree in marketing. She's very mature. She knows what she's doing. I said, so what are you going to do when you graduate? She said, oh, my boyfriend and I are going to open up a restaurant right by the college. I'm like, okay, Fordham is in New York City, so what's the deal? What, what, why would you do that? She says, well, because there aren't any good restaurants. I said, okay, first of all, my brother is a chef. I'll give you his number, Colin. It's like the impossible business. It's like the 90% failure business. Oh, Before you take other people's money and flush it down the drain, mm-hmm. you know, think about getting a job in marketing. Mm-hmm. So, but... That's the point. The point is, is that you can't say to somebody, well, don't go into radio because it's really bad. It's, well, that person could be the person who got into radio and turned it around and made it like a major thing or whatever. Howard Stern is making tons of money in radio. It just happens to be subscription radio. Uh, You know, radio exists. Podcasts are, as we discussed before, an extension of radio. They really are. Uh, It's just... We're down to that point where the audiences get smaller. But I I say to a young person, what is it, what's your talent? What is it that you really like to do? And what is it that you, that other people, objective people, not your parents, said to you that you do really well? Mm-hmm. And then like people say to me all the time, it's like, ah, oh, you're a writer now. 
why don't you start writing? I said, I've been writing since I was seven years old. You're a journalism like, major, right? Yes, but yeah. the fact is that when I was in when I was in middle school, elementary school, I won writing contests. I just had a, a letter from, uh, an email came in from one of my old buddies who played drums in my rock and roll band in high school. And he's like, yeah, don't you remember? You helped me fix my script for the Voice of a Voice of Democracy contest. I said, okay, That's you're not you. supposed to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't trying to cheat or whatever. I won, I won it anyway, so forget about it. But I'm still learning. I really am. And I tell people that I spent three days with Robert McKee, the script writing guru, you know, who has the story, is his book. And I did that course at NYU, and I came away from there realizing how much more I had to learn. True Radio Confessions, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And you can get your book at Amazon. Where else and, can we get it? Uh, Goodreads. Goodreads, right? And uh, it'll eventually be distributed through the thing. Amazon slows the slows the spread, so they get the, <laughs> the, the money on the front end. But but uh, yeah. And by the way, I just want to say there there is lots of sex, there's lots of drugs, and there's lots of rock and roll in the book. I, I don't. I mean, that's not just there to sell books. I mean, it really is. And if you're from radio, consider it my love letter to you. Thanks Thank for coming you. in the studio. I really appreciate it. I love it. Thank you. You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.